Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme, urban security. China is urging its citizens not to travel abroad as it struggles to contain the virus that has now killed more than 100 people. How should cities handle a crisis? The current news cycle has been dominated by the coverage of the coronavirus, but health emergencies are just one type of crisis that cities are faced with. We have got a permanent fragility of what have been dynamic cities that have held the whole country up. So that means the weakness of a city can bring down a nation, and terrorism is actually doing that. From terrorism to cyber attacks, natural disaster and more, this week we look at how different cities have dealt when disaster struck and what should be done differently in the future. That's all coming up right now on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Stay tuned. Welcome to this week's Urbanist. We start precisely with a look at the coronavirus as more and more cases are confirmed outside of mainland China. Dr Sally Liversey is the Managing Director of News Risk Limited. Sally advises companies and governments on terrorism and how to protect people and businesses from extreme incidents. So who better to tell us about how our urban areas are dealing with the coronavirus health emergency? We're seeing its impact in many cities, trade is affected, people are being put into quarantine and travel has also been halted in many places. So, Sally... What is your immediate reaction to the scale of all of this? Perhaps the easiest way to look at it is to see that China is doing a magnificent and very advanced approach. It's done very serious modelling in the past, and that modelling is obviously guiding what it's doing. And what we saw was an atypical, very quick closing of cities, which meant over 50 million people in different cities were stopped. And what the Chinese operated on was how to minimise transportation between cities, stop movements, but how to maximise what they're calling green lanes and moving supplies into cities. So they're trying to not have people panic over supplies, which will cause movement, but they're trying to keep people in a very restricted environment. And do you imagine that key cities like Wuhan could be in effect, shut down then for months? Not necessarily, because so many people get infected, there are few people to infect. (laughs) And what we're saying today may change quite considerably because this is a very, very cunning virus. It's more cunning than some of the ones I've seen in the past. But what we're seeing, they're suggesting a 2.6 persons are going to be infected for every new infection. So if you're infected, 2.6 people have had contact with you that are going to be infected. So that's the growth rate at the moment. But in a closed-in city, the number of people cross-infected will eventually mean there are barriers. There are people who've had the infection, so they won't cross-infect. So they'll start to come down, and it will get better. But the rest of the world needs to look at the history, which really was from the beginning of December. We didn't see anything till the end of December, But what we may see is aeroplanes bringing multiple contacts into multiple cities, whereas in China there was one location and they could close that down very quickly. What happens if in America or in the United Kingdom or Singapore you've got multiple starts of that virus? 
We saw a, a gentleman which had co- who had come back from uh, China, from Wuhan, and who, who was sick on arrival in the UK, went to the doctors. We saw people in hazmat suits coming around to kind of treat him and, and see him. Already he's had contact with other people. So are you saying it's oddly perhaps more tricky for cities, for example, here in Europe, where one or two people come back and who may be sick because there isn't in place these kind of very strong processes for trying to clamp down on, on the spread of the epidemic? What we should see is that the assistance people are having in China is the gold standard and very much to the advantage of that population. I would not expect that level of operation to be managing in other parts of Europe as this starts to move through. Now, we're just starting two months behind. So if the initial cases have not been stopped in a country, it means that you will have start points in different cities. The problem is in all cities of the world, and what China has done is it's built different facilities. If you have any facility and its medical staff and all service staff totally dedicated, you can actually give massively good treatment to those people who often need a lot of support for the pneumonia that they are suffering from. If we start to mix any of those people in any hospitals in Europe or Singapore or Australia, then the contagion to the rest of the staff is just inevitable. Tell me, you've talked to us in the past about what's done around terrorism. You know, we see cities, uh, police forces, military, central government practicing and going through scenarios for what this could look like a huge terrorist attack. And we even see it on our streets. We see days when, when, when there are practices and re- rehearsals, as it were, for an attack. Is that the same thing with something like this? Do you imagine that in most Western capitals and Western major cities, the health authorities have been through acting out, imagining all the scenarios that you might get from something like coronavirus? The problem for countries with this one is that you need counterintuitive solutions. It's not working the medical case up to just manage more. It's taking a totally different solution to what could overwhelm a nation. And what China has done by cutting off major cities in such ways, and I do feel very sympathetic to the people of Hong Kong who wanted immediately to cut off from the mainland because they had a better chance of being restrictive. But what has really happened there, I haven't seen that level of knowledge starting to be planned in other cities. I'm not seeing preparations going on around the world for that. You may get countries like Singapore, you may find Australia will start to get very restrictive, but to cut a whole city off needs what I'd call a lot of bravery in in lieu of other words of any national leader to do. Because the terrible thing, it kind of has echoes of the plague almost when you saw here in the 1600s, you know, villages and towns cut off by other communities. They would leave food on the borders of the, the town. They didn't have any contact with these people. And as you said, it's a much more advanced process that's happening in China. But essentially, putting places in quarantine still seems to be essential to the control of this Local community management is the only way at this point of time. And forget about the magic of there being injections and vaccinations that are going to help. A year is an optimistic estimate before it gets to you. Just remember that if you do think of how to isolate yourself, that the fact that so many of these victims have a pneumonia 
and in both sides of their lungs can be filled with pneumonia and a proportion of those go on to really need quite a lot of assistance. The biggest Chinese study that's been reported in The Lancet yesterday was showing out of 90 cases that went to hospital, 10% of those didn't come out. Sally, I'm just going to pause our conversation for a second here. We're just talking about Hong Kong a minute ago, and our Bureau Chief James Chambers sent us this dispatch. Let's have a listen. We apologise that surgical masks, alcohol wipes, alcohol gel and alcohol spray are all sold out. Local media reported that supplies of the N95 mask, widely used during the SARS outbreak in Hong Kong, are running low, with some retailers doubling prices of dwindling stocks. Hong Kong is in the midst of a hygiene frenzy, and sold-out signs like this have started to appear outside of chain pharmacies, small shops and drugstores right across the city. As the coronavirus spreads across mainland China, Shoppers here are panic-buying face masks, but demand is exceeding supply, prompting queues and angry crowds of consumers who are not used to having to wait. Buying masks and wearing them is common practice in Hong Kong. It's been like that ever since the SARS virus hit the city in 2003. Usually anyone with a cold will cover their nose and mouth in public in order to stop the spread of germs. The big difference right now is that healthy people are wearing them as a matter of precaution. Some people will go through several a day, and since the coronavirus has no end in sight, there's a sense of panic building and some shameless profiteering. A few independent drugstores are selling masks for more than four or five times their usual price. Right now, the government says it's working with the mainland Chinese authorities to get a fresh supply. After all, most masks are made in China, so global supplies will remain tight until factories across the border get back to work after the Lunar New Year. The government is also talking to 140 suppliers in 10 other countries. This giant restock of masks is part of a suite of measures being rolled out to limit the spread of the virus. So far, these initiatives have ranged from cancelling official Chinese New Year celebrations to turning summer camps into quarantine facilities for infected patients. School kids have been given an extra two weeks of holiday, while swimming pools and other public spaces are shut until further notice. Civil servants in non-essential jobs are currently required to stay at home, and the government has requested private employers follow suit. And in a surprise move only a few days ago, Chief Executive Carrie Lam came out wearing a mask to announce a partial closure of the border with mainland China and the suspension of visas for mainland tourists. As a result of all this, Hong Kong's usually hectic, noisy and overcrowded streets have become eerily quiet. Shops and offices are closed, bar stools remain unoccupied, and empty taxis are roaming the streets with their red lights on looking for fares. While the buses and subway trains are running, everyone on board can be guaranteed a seat. And for those who do decide to venture outside, the vast majority are wearing disposable surgical masks, or a more industrial-looking model made by 3M, the type you may wear to sand down your floorboards at home. These so-called N95 masks have suddenly entered the Hong Kong lexicon. This heightened demand for masks has caught everyone by surprise. Only a few months ago, the government tried to ban the wearing of masks for non-medical reasons in an effort to curb the ongoing protests. Wearing a face mask in 2019 was the equivalent of holding up an umbrella during the student-led street occupation in 2014. Initially, protesters bought surgical masks from convenience stores, 
offer some protection against tear gas. But later on, these masks became more plastic and professional looking and performed a secondary function as a guard against identification by police. But now they're also being used for their original purpose. While frontline protesters want to look after their health, frontline doctors and nurses are now starting to act like protesters. Hospital staff in Hong Kong are currently threatening to go on strike unless the government completely shuts down the border with mainland China. And that's a far more worrying scenario for Carrie Lam's administration than a temporary shortage of face masks. For Monocle 24 in Hong Kong, I'm James Chambers. Well, thank you to James. Well, still with me in the studio is the security expert, Dr. Sally Livesey. Sally, so what systems are in place for our urban areas to respond to attacks? We're still quite naive about cyber attacks, for example. Well, there are a couple of things that are happening. Some cyber attacks, such as you mentioned, are to raise money, and sometimes that's other nation states. You're getting a fusion between nation states and organised crime in cyberspace to try and get that sort of money, and it's very successful. But in recent work that I've been doing with a group of international scientists who are physicists and other disciplines, we've been looking at how do cities become very fragile if there is a way in which the cyber attacks can cut off critical resources? And we've started looking at water in great detail because water is, if you can't give your population water in a city, they'll move. That's the first thing that will start them within two days. But you've also got your energy infrastructure. So the way in which cities are organisms, and people might say, well, why do you worry about cities? But to my mind, cities are critical national infrastructure in themselves. And you have to look at them as a highly interconnected organism. And unless you can support the population in that city with energy, water, communications, that city is going to slow down, people are going to move, and panic will happen, particularly in a conflict situation. So managing that infrastructure is important. And unfortunately, all of the lovely cyber design people, it's the same in in other design areas like architecture, but In cyber design, they haven't had bad minds. (laughs) So it means that these facilities in the design haven't been prepared for very bad cyber attacks that literally can turn them off. And just finally, we should look at the issue of terrorism, which has, I guess we haven't had the kind of attack in the last few months that kind of dominates headlines in US or in Western capitals, which for good or bad, are the ones that seem to set the news agenda. Is that just good luck? Or do you think that the attacks that we saw everywhere from Berlin to Nice to London have begun to be dampened down and that the knowledge level is coming back up again? We had this one attack here again on London Bridge where there had been an attack before. But despite its terrible nature, it was nothing on the scale of what we've seen in the past. What's your feeling about how terrorism, you know, we're talking about coronavirus, but how is terrorism mutating and changing and what do we have to be on the lookout for? Well, it's very good to relate terrorism to virus because it is mutating in the same way. And you're going to have some areas where the terrorism is back to the bad old days, particularly where there's been funds, where some terrorists have controlled whole cities 
have been able to practice with a whole lot of aviation equipment so they know what will go through the scanner and what won't. They're very good at research in some of the groups. We have a fragmented distributed terror network down through sort of Southeast Asia, looking at areas like the Philippines, there's particular sort of worries. What we're going to see is what you would call small attacks, but just think of what happened when London Bridge, when a single prisoner on parole was able to manipulate good-willed people to let him be at London Bridge on a Friday with hidden machetes and able to kill people. And that just shows that whole city, remember that the buses sort of closed down for well over a day, you had that city was totally focused on that, which isn't the intention of the counterterrorism planning here. But if we look at cities like Baghdad and some of those cities in those areas, I think we have to understand that the regeneration of terrorism that is happening, and particularly also the merging with nation states, because we see countries like Iran are in there working sort of with groups, those cities are not going to recover So we have got a permanent fragility of what have been dynamic cities that have held the whole country up. So that means the weakness of a city can bring down a nation and terrorism is actually doing that. The security expert, Dr Sally Liversey, who's also the managing director of News Risk Limited. This is The Urbanist. Let's turn our focus now to a different type of crisis, natural ones. Two areas of the world are dealing with the exact opposite problem. There are wildfires in Australia, floods in Italy. We'll start with the latter. The city of Venice has been dealing with the issue of aqua alta for decades now, even centuries. But it's getting worse, and those images of a flooded Piazza San Marco are becoming ever more frequent. A state of emergency in the beautiful Italian city of Venice. Exceptional flooding from high tides, the worst in 50 years, leaving the tourist town basically underwater. It is a city used to water, but it's hard for residents to cope with a reality like this. Venice's famous St. Mark's Square now enveloped by a carpet of water. The new round of devastating flooding in Venice. People in one of the world's most famous cities wading through waters from their ankles to their knees. Protests now breaking out as concerns grow about the city's future. Francesco Musco is a professor of urban planning at the University of Venice. He founded the Planning and Climate Change Lab and his work focuses on research and implementing urban resilience. I started by asking Francesco about the Aqua Alta and how it impacts the city. Aqua alta or high tide phenomenon is something natural. If we look at the lagoon and if we look at the island of Venice, uh, the impact has been increased, especially in the last flooding of last November, has been increased by specific circumstances of local climate, wind, especially warm wind that uh, increased the intensity of high water from the sea into the lagoon and then on the old town in particular. When we hear people talk about making cities more resilient to floods, normally people talk about, for example, in Manhattan, people have talked about building huge spaces underneath buildings that could suck in flood water. 
planting the water's edge with plants and trees that would break the rush of water. But here we're talking about something which is on a different scale. Do any of those simple measures, would they mitigate anything in the Venice region, in the lagoon and in the historic city? Or are you kind of stuck with dealing with this water, as you say, that's been there for centuries? Because you can't go into the old town, for example, and build huge kind of like caverns to suck in rainwater. It would destroy the city. It's a a very evident controversy because uh, implementing adaptation solution in the historical city of Venice is simply not possible if we use the same methodologies that are going to be designed, implemented in Manhattan, as you told, or in other bigger global cities. If we look at the old town, especially look at the impact on the historical heritage, that is one of the strongest impact. The San Marco Cathedral has been probably flooded a few times in the last few centuries, and three times have been in the last 20 years. It's a very evident indicator that something is going to change. The real effort has to be to try to combine some technologies, for example, the long debate connected to the protection of the lagoon at the entrance of the lagoon with a special Mose system. There is a long debate about that. That probably in a few years will be finally completed in terms of the public work. And that one could be a measure, is a technological measure that at the entrance of a lagoon can reduce the impact of high tide. Is there a kind of a weird split mentality that exists in Venice? Because on one hand, you know, it's a city that is incredibly dependent on mass tourism. And even though some people don't like them on the cruise ships coming in burning fossil fuels, people flying in from around the world, one of the causes of climate change, as we all know. And on the other side, a city saying, we have to stop climate change because we're being so heavily impacted. Is there a kind of a existential almost debate going on in the city about what the relationship is with climate change? It's a very good question. The real problem of Venice is connected to the fact that a city that has around 50,000 inhabitants in the historical center, I mean on the island, 50,000, cannot accept any more than 20 million tourists per year. It's simply a matter of unbalanced, unbalanced of the system. Venice has, especially if you look from outside, you can imagine that Venice has two main dimensions. A global dimension, the Venice that everyone in the world knows, the Venice that is connected with any global city in the world, from the airport of Venice, you can fly direct to any U.S. city, any global city around the world. At the same time, there is the local level of Venice that is made of 50,000 inhabitants that cannot afford the unbalanced pressure of 20 million tourists. Francesco Musco of the University of Venice there. This is The Urbanist. More than 1,000 firefighters, and now the military, are in action across the state, trying to contain the fires and prevent them from reaching more inhabited areas. They've devastated communities around the state, costing lives and taking livelihoods. Now the government wants to learn what it can from our horror bushfires. There are things that I could have handled on the ground much better. These are very raw, emotional environments. Um, Prime Ministers are flesh and blood too and how they engage with people. 
Even if you had wanted to, it would have been impossible for you to avoid the terrifying images of Australia up in flames. This season's bushfires have ravaged through the country mercilessly, with firefighters being dispatched from around the world to help contain the flames. David Bowman is a professor of environmental change biology and a specialist in fires at the University of Tasmania. He joined me from Hobart earlier to tell me just exactly how bad the situation has become and if it could have been predicted. I warned people in early November that Australia was about to experience a historically transformative fire season and unfortunately I was right. I gave actually several seminars and conferences in early December explaining the unprecedented nature of the fires. At the new year, the fires really erupted and showed their muscle. And the concerning thing is that this ain't over yet. We're looking at another heat wave, incredibly dry conditions here in Tasmania. I will be surprised if there is not more impact from this fire season. We're already up to about 8 million hectares, significant loss of life and property. But the bad news is that we've been lucky, very lucky, and the capacity for mass casualty event, mass property life event, huge social disruption event of the likes possibly the world's never seen is still on the table. Could you just talk to us about what's happening to built communities, to cities, as they face up to the prospect of being surrounded by these fires for years to come? A lot of people in cities probably don't give much thought to uh, where their water comes from, and they generally take for granted city air. They know that there is air pollution in cities, but when Australian cities are experiencing really significant, globally significant, hazardous air because of bushfire where there's ash washing up on beaches where the sun is occluded the light is sort of deranged it's not an australian summer light it's a deranged scary light that then city people really start engaging in the bushfire reality so people in cities are are now got this heightened awareness of how bushfire can cross the boundary from nature into what we consider the built environment, the human environment is actually more vulnerable. When you think about settlement patterns, you know, for example, in Tasmania, is this going to change where people will be allowed to live, you know, where planning will be given for people to live? Because it doesn't sound like architects or builders can do much to put up houses that would survive the ferocity of these fires. Are we looking at change patterns of settlement within Australia as a result of these fires? Well, actually, the news isn't that bad. You can significantly improve building design to withstand ember storms, and you can change the built environment to be a hell of a lot less combustible. David Bowman from the University of Tasmania. There are numerous organisations, academics and planners who can give you the lowdown on how to make your city more resilient, more prepared for when disaster might strike. But many of these people are helping cities where the threat has, until now, 
been a possibility or perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime challenge. But now we have communities that face existential dangers every few years. That's what was so frightening about the Australian bushfires. They didn't look like a freak event to many experts. They looked like a hellish new reality. Will it be like this every summer, Australians wondered. Maybe. And it's not just the frequency of these events that's sobering. It's the magnitude too. Floods have always occurred in Venice, but not floods like this. That's why many people say, forget resilience. We need to literally move to higher ground, to places less prone to temperature extremes. Yet, what's been heartening about this week's show is that many people, even those who've been canaries in the mines, believe we can adapt, prepare and take action. Settlement design and landscape management will have to change, but we can do more to protect ourselves, our homes and our communities. Well, that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens. David also edited the show. And a special thanks to Nick Manise and Chiara Ramella too. And to play you out of this week's episode, here's Anoni with Crisis. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Crisis If I killed your father With a drone bomb How would you feel? 